And that brings us to Psalm 26. So please turn to the 26th Psalm. I'll be reading the whole thing. It's short. It's a Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Yahweh. For I have walked in my integrity and have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly. Of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep me or my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly I will bless Yahweh. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible prayer and psalm to our hearts and souls this morning. Father, let us feel with your servant David such boldness and confidence in your merciful covenant with us through our Lord Jesus. Teach us to pray. Amen. So this morning, let me, I'm going to begin with a number of questions. And as I ask them, answer to yourself, yes or, or no. First, Are you sinful? Next, does your heart ever waver? Meaning at times you feel worshipful and grateful to God for calling you to Jesus. And at other times you feel blah. Has Jesus put you on a path of taking the scriptures seriously. Do you ever sin against the scriptural commands? Do you feel at times that you are too worldly? Do you feel at times separated from the world, alienated from it because of your love for Jesus? Do you feel spiritually dead and 
apathetic towards God and His Word while in church on a Sunday morning? Do you ever love being with God and His people to worship on Sunday morning? All right, that's enough. If you answered yes to all those questions, then take heart because you're in special covenant with the Lord, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And this psalm is for you. This kind of prayer that's before us was written for your instruction. The psalm has three parts to it. Here's the overview. Verse 1 is David's prayer request. Then verses 2 through 10, David in his prayer argues. He gives reasons to God for why he should grant his prayer request. And then he closes it in verses 11 and 12 with his resolve to keep on pursuing the Lord. So, let's go to it. First, his prayer request in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Yahweh. There it is. In Hebrew, literally, judge me. Now, obviously, as we read the larger context, what he is saying is, Lord, judge in my favor, which implies vindicate. That's why they translate it that way. You know, clear me of what I'm being charged with by others. Show that I am in the right. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been accused? And you know that you're in the right, though. And that God is your only plea. Now, verses 4 and 5 shows that essentially probably what's going on here. These, these non-believers, worldly, wicked men have accused David. They've denounced him as the one who's in the wrong. And David appeals to Yahweh, who, who is able to make things clear. He's able to affirm David's integrity and his rightness before his accusers. All right, there's his petition. Now, the rest of verse 1 is a concise argument for why God should do this. His larger argument will be verses 2 to 10, but here it is. That's why the word for, right? Vindicate me, O Yahweh. Why? For I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. So he gives two reasons. My lifestyle, how I live, and my faith. Really, my faith, which is evidenced by my life. 
So therefore vindicate me. That's what it says. Now, lest any of us think that David's appealing to works of the law that would merit or earn God's answer to his prayer, we need to be clear on the words that he's actually using here. The, the ESV, it translates the word tom, the Hebrew word, as integrity here. Now, the NIV translates it like this, for I have led a blameless life. Now, so what? The word tom at its core is the word for complete. It's completeness or wholeness. David is saying, Lord, I've walked, I've lived this way, holy, I mean, with wholeheartedness. Lord, you know me better than anybody. This is who I am. It's whom you made me to be. And you know, Lord, I'm all in. I'm wholly in. I'm completely in with you. Now, Dave is not referring to some fake perfectionism. But he's talking about his overall consistency of his life as a believer. He's not talking about a sinless record, but, but a Godward disposition. The totality of his life is devoted to the Lord, to Yahweh. He's claiming, you made me alive to you. I pursue you. You know this. This is the foundational path of my life. So Lord, give the verdict that I'm asking for so that these people will know. Make it clear that you approve of me. His prayer. Now, don't miss a point of instruction here. David feels slandered, and he doesn't here go to the so called family or so called friends or enemies to appeal his case. He hides away alone. And he goes to God in prayer. He knew the truth of his relationship with God and God's call on him. And the way God judges him is much more important than the way people judge him. Now, let's. Go to the New Testament for a moment. The Apostle Paul also knew that the ultimate authority of judgment about his own life and his own ministry, it was not men. It was God alone. This is how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 2. 
I and the others were all stewards. And it is required of stewards that they be found faithful or trustworthy. But Corinthians, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. As I look, I'm not aware of anything against myself. But, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and reveal the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now look, what Paul knew and contextually here, he, he knew that many of the Christians within the church of Corinth were saying stuff about him like, Paul, he, he stinks as a preacher. He's not that good of a teacher, like Apollos or like Peter. He went to the Lord that whether you judge me that way or not matter to me was his attitude. See, when he wrote his next letter after this, this is what he said about some of the people there in Corinth, where they say, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Paul's stance was, until I'm convicted of doing wrong or of neglecting to do what I should do, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to march on. God is my judge. Now, like David, I, Paul would be pleased if the Lord would vindicate, if the Lord would convict others to see the truth that they're judging him wrongly. But if they don't... Now, let me just say this. Both David and Paul are all for taking criticism, even their own self-criticism, or in other words, prayerful self-examination, they're all in for it. That's the next section of the psalm, verses 2 to 10. Yes, Lord, you're examining it, but he's examining it along with his own self-consciousness is what he is appealing to. Lord, he essentially says now in the next section, as I see it, here's the reason I'm in the right here. You should vindicate me to my accusers. Why? Because of my track record first. I've been consistent. That's verses 2 and 3. So look, prove me. O oh Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. And I walk in your faithfulness to me. He says, Lord, test me. Examine me. Test the, the inner, the, 
the unseen workings of my heart and my mind. Lord, you know me better than anybody else. You know my sincerity. My heart is anchored upon you, and it's anchored upon your promise, your covenant love. That's what he says. Four, verse three, for your steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word, chesed. Covenant, special, not like Jesus loves you, but very personal covenant love that David knows he's in covenant with the Lord. And David looks to that covenant, that mercy. So whether you, it's steadfast mercy or steadfast love, that's why you get it translated different ways into English. This word used throughout the Old Testament has said, he, he says, your steadfast love. The whole point is, I am looking to it. That's where my heart is. You know, Lord, what others can't see. And you know what my heart set upon. And by it being set upon you, you know what it's produced in me. Verse 3. And I walk in your faithfulness. The unseen faith evidences by a pathway. And so he says, test my walk, which comes from my heart, what you're producing in me, and therefore vindicate me. My consistent walk is owing to your faithfulness. That's his first argument. And then David goes on to say that as an example of his faithful walk is that he refuses to hang out with the wrong kind of people. Verses 4 and 5. Lord, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly, the gathering of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So he says, having his eyes upon God's mercy, upon his love, upon the Lord's loving him, it produces in him good sense to shun the people you should shun. Or the way that the Apostle Paul put it, bad company corrupts good morals. People who walk with the Lord, they know this. Because Paul and David had the Lord's love for them before their eyes, their focus, there was no desire to chum around with the godless. 
the taste of God's holiness produces a distaste for those who live as if there is no God. For those who worship the world. True conversion to Yahweh, to Jesus, produces separation. That's David's argument. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he put it this way in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they're surprised, because you come to Jesus now, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they say all kinds of bad stuff about you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So, when a person who may call themselves a Christian enjoys that kind of company, it's a bad sign. David says, look, Lord, look, the fruit of my eyes upon you, it produces a holy hatred. Verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. The Bible's clear. It's all for hatreds. One of the stupidest signs out there is I'm against hate. Those who love God, the scriptures say, must hate evil. It's a good thing to hate murder. It's a really, really good thing to hate wickedness and evil. In the New Testament terms, it goes like this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, this does not mean that Christians don't ever hang around or converse with, or befriend unbelievers. 
For, as the Apostle Paul would say, for then you would have to go out of the world. But what it means is, as you walk through the world, be you. If you're a believer, be a lover of Jesus. And thus, in being with them, you maintain a remoteness from their evil doings and practices and manner of speaking. This, this is not, oh, well, I guess I became a Christian, so, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do now? I guess I'm not supposed to enjoy hanging around with those who live godless lives. Okay, I guess that's on the curriculum of being a church person. That is not what this is at all about. I mean, that would be like a guy marrying the girl of his dreams and realizing the next day, I didn't know where I had to say those vows. I got to keep myself only for you? Oh, I guess I'm married. I'm supposed to do that. No. He knew the vows going in and says, yes, that's what I want. In other words, this is because of that walk of David or Paul or any Christian. It is because of new birth, a new found taste or joy, a new found object before my eyes, oh Yahweh. That's what it is. And that's the context. Look what he says next. He goes right into that. Verses 6 to 8. Instead of that, ain't hanging with them. It's not me. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, unashamed, and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house. I love the place where your glory dwells. David says he craves the exercise of worship. He, he refers to the preparation of worship there with the washings. Meaning the washings of the hands and the feet in, in the laver over there on Zion, that little hill where the ark is now, in the tent where, where you wash your hands and your feet before you approach Symbolically here, the presence of the Lord on the altar. And then he says he vocally gives thanks to God and praises His name for, for His goodness, for His gifts, for His works, His deeds. That's what he does. What does that sound like with David? Well, let's just hear him. This is, this is David doing this in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, David. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, O soul. 
who crowns you with steadfast love. There it is again, covenant love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's him. And all of that leads to David's summary in verse 8. O Yahweh, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. I love the place where your glory dwells. Because to experience the saving mercy of God upon one's soul is to gladly love and to enjoy the house of the Lord. His temple which is the church, his people, in congregational worship. David's shunning of wickedness and loving the place of God's glory is just describing a person who once just knew what it was to live and exist on bland, flavorless rice and water. Until, as Jesus said, the wind blew and they found themselves alive. Or to keep with that analogy of rice and water, until they tasted a juicy hamburger with fries and a chocolate shake. And thus he would exclaim, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. There's David. To every believer, in the way I began this sermon with questions, of wavering, every Christian who is born again heard what I said as their experience. And life, though, goes up and it goes down. Let's hear the psalmist for a moment with this in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God because I'm not drinking of it right now. I'm in too much pain. That's what he's saying. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they, my tears, say to me all day long, where is your God? Listen to what he says. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What things? What he's going to say. Here are the things he remembers in that time. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And you know how the psalm goes on then. He speaks to himself, Hope 
even in your tears right now, in dryness, hope in God, soul, because I shall again praise Him. Okay. Then, back to our song. David shows that this, his, his deep concern here in his prayer, it includes now, this, it includes not having the same outcome at the final judgment that the wicked will have. Verses 9 and 10. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hand are full of bribes. So part of David's worshipful, joyful prayer is a holy fear, which is birthed by God's grace in David and in every believer by the Holy Spirit. It's called new birth. In other words, David's heart and soul is in lockstep with the Lord Jesus when he said in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they could do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. After John Newton, the wicked slave trader, after he was brought into the saving arms of Jesus, he penned it really well. One of the most famous hymns in the English language. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now hear him. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Oh, what a gift. And grace, then, with the gospel of Jesus, my fears relieved. Oh, how precious did that grace appear, the hour. I first believed. So verses 2 to 10 summed up, David says, Lord, I'm in the right. Vindicate me because you've saved me. I'm real. I'm yours. Your new covenant mercy and love are my life. And then David closes the psalm with his resolve, his resolution to keep on keeping on walking with the Lord. Verses 11 and 12. But as for me, I shall 
walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. So notice at the beginning of verse 11 there. He comes back to the same word that he began the psalm with. The Hebrew word tome, translated integrity, meaning sense of wholeheartedness. And it is also the pronoun I, David, I, I is emphatic in the Hebrew because it's put first in the sentence. The pronoun. And that's why translators decide, let's just do it twice to make it clear in English the way it should be understood. But as for me, I shall walk with my whole heart toward you. So in the flow of the Psalms, Lord, I have walked in your wholeheartedness and I intend to go on living in faithfulness to you, Lord. So Christian, have you for a couple of years, a few months, maybe many decades, been walking with the Lord through ups and downs, joys, and tears, welcomed blessings that come into your life, and unexpected devastations. If so, today's the day. Go on, like David, go on wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord in our so-called mundane lives. The lives that the Lord has put you in is such a time as this. In the midst of wavering hearts. In times of joyful external circumstances. Or in pain and fears. Keep your hand to the plow. And resolve with David. But as for me, I shall walk wholeheartedly with you, O Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard your word. We know that you are working. And so work it continually now and throughout this week and this month and the rest of our lives that we would keep on keeping on coveting your Holy Spirit's enlivening work in our hearts keeping our eyes upon your precious new covenant purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus. Amen.
Let us stand and worship and adore our great King as our eyes are upon His covenant love.